Welcome to another episode of the Bible Archives, and today we are going to cover chapter 22 and 23 of Genesis. And these two stories interact with each other because they both deal with components of the covenant. So in chapter 21, the text kind of narrates through the separation of Ishmael and Isaac, confirms Isaac as the heir. This is the person the covenant's going to continue through. So here we're going to get a story about uh, descendants and lineage um, that deals with the part of the process, the promise of uh, the multiplication of Abraham's tribe. And then we're going to get a story about land because the other part of the promise is that Abraham's tribe is going to inherit and occupy a, a piece of land. So these two chapters, while the content is very different, are interacting with the same impulse of the covenant. Now, Genesis 22 is very known. Oh, yeah. People talk about this chapter a lot. And part of that's the, the same thing with many of the chapters in the Hebrew Bible that people know, because it's a good story. Mm-hmm. It's something that is, is easy to uh, interact with. We can kind of envision, particularly Genesis 22, it's very cinemat- uh, cinematic. Yeah, well, there, there's a lot of uh, narrative details, and it's it's an easy story to read. It also has a really uh, heightened narrative to it. Uh, this is intense as yeah. you're reading it. So this is one that gets brought up a lot. So a lot of what we're going to try to do is dive into some of the details and show this isn't an easy chapter to understand. It's actually quite complicated. Um, theologically, it brings up some issues. Um, so let's dive into into this chapter and, and see what we can find. Yeah, this story kind of bookends then with chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the first time that we see God interacting with Abraham, and then this would be one of the last times we really see that God is talking to Abraham. The literary forms and the language kind of parallel each other here because in chapter 12, God tells Abraham to go forth from the land that I show you, And then here in chapter 22, go forth to the place that I will point out to you. So Abraham is left kind of uncertain about where he's going. And then you also see these triple stresses of your land, your homeland, your father's house, he says. And then God says to him, take your son, your only son, your beloved. So there's kind of a a similar pattern, almost a rhythm to these particular stories. And then finally, at the end, the wording of the covenant at the end of both chapter 12 and of chapter 22 are very similar to the point where you can see that the two of them are supposed to kind of be uh, bookends to one another. So we see kind of some parallels there. We also see some parallels to chapter 21 because in chapter 21, Abram has to let go of Ishmael. And uh, we see a case where Ishmael has to leave, but then there's an angelic intervention and then another reiteration of covenant. And that's kind of what happens here. Abraham, it looks like he's going to have to sacrifice his son Isaac, but then we'll see an angelic intervention and then finally a reiteration of the covenant. Mm -hmm. And the reiteration of the covenant is going to look like reiterations that we've had throughout that span between Genesis 12 and now. Right. So the first thing that comes up, comes up right away. And it's verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham. And this is, this is a motif that's worth bringing up. This happens occasionally. Most notably, we see this again in the book of Job. Um, again, one that people are very familiar with. The concept of testing is tricky. 
and this is something that's in, in popular dialogue um, about faith and spirituality, and particularly religion, where we talk about how God's testing us. Yeah, sure, I've heard that, yeah. Um, in conversations of theodicy, um, of, you know, why does suffering happen, this is actually um, a, a perspective that's utilized a lot. And, and I just want to go on record saying it's quite unhealthy, um, at least in, in its pragmatic satisfaction when when somebody's experienced suffering. So it's an easy line to say, well, God's testing you. And, and that offers some uh, uh, cognitive satisfaction. It right. gives an explanation. Of why did this? Ah, it's just, you know, this divine being is testing me. Um, but psychologically, we know that that, that causes um, a very difficult time working through the suffering. Oh, sure. It reminds me of people say, well, God will never give you more than you can bear. But then you think, yeah, but this seems unbearable. So what mm -hmm. kind of a God am I dealing with here? It, the biggest problem that I would bring up when people use that, I'm not saying that you, you can't. I, I'm saying be careful with it because we're assuming that we know the mind of God. Mm -hmm. We're assuming we know the intention here. And I, don't, I, I think that's a very daring uh, claim to make. That I know, I know what God's doing here. God's testing me. It's a really easy thing to revert to, um, but to to do that with confidence is a, a little bit questionable to me. Now, what's interesting about Genesis twenty two is the word test that we we translate test certainly can be translated that way. It's the the Hebrew word uh, nasah, and it can also have more of the emphasis of proving, so proving to be true. Okay. Um, and so the question here would be, what is, what are we proving to be true? And one of the things you see as you read through this text, is it seems like there's a chance that God and Abraham both know what's going to happen here. And we'll get into that as we go through the narrative. And so it doesn't seem like the test is what Abraham will do. It might be about something else. Um, and so we have to ask what, what is the testing here? And whatever you, you name is that is going to lead to your interpretation. Is this, uh, testing Abraham's obedience, right? That's the common direction right. we go. Yeah. Is this proving to be true that Isaac is the actual heir, oh, okay. which after Genesis 21, that would be a way to confirm that. Mm -hmm. Yes, Isaac is the heir. And we know that because of how Abraham and Isaac and God interact through the chapter, that can be an interpretation. Um, but then you get this uh, right after we find out that um, God is testing Abraham. God says, Abraham. And Abraham responds, here I am. And here I am is going to become a very popular uh, phrase, especially amongst prophets. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of part of the prophetic call. Isaiah comes to mm -hmm. mind. Sure. Um, and we could stop with the testing narrative there. That the testing uh, concept, Nassau, doesn't come up again. And so is the test simply that Abraham knows his identity? So, if, and think of Abraham's name, father of multitudes. So God says, father of multitudes. And Abraham says, that's me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Proven to be true. Mm -hmm. Test. Now we know. Test one. Now the test ends. Now, what, now there's this other story that happens because... Mm -hmm. The you could distinguish the taking of your son and going to this mountain 
as separate from the test. So you could claim, and there, there are some um, uh, scholars who do this, who say the test is verse 1, verse 2 starts a whole other thing. The, the, the story of the sacrifice is not part of the test. Mm-hmm. That's, I'm just pointing out that there's a lot of ways to start looking at that. And we've, we've kind of streamlined, nope, there's one way to understand the story. That might not be the case. So then we get into these details. And, and as you brought up, you get that, that triple line, the take your son, your only son, whom you love, yeah. which has that rhythm to it. And the command is to uh, go to the land of Moriah, which nobody knows. Nobody knows what the land of Moriah was. No, it's not Mount Moriah. Right. Uh, and so they go there, wherever that is. Mm-hmm. And it says, offer, uh, offer Isaac there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. And you get that, the, the land that I will show you. Yeah. Referring again. Um, and so if a modern person is reading this, we get that line, you know, go offer your son Isaac as a burnt offering. And we go, what the hell is going on here? Really? Now, th- this is actually a common thing. Uh, a lot of scholars bring this up. Um, the, the idea of a child sacrifice or a human sacrifice, while very strange to us, wouldn't have been that strange. Not the, really, no. Certainly not amongst the, some of the surrounding cultures. Mm-hmm. The, particularly, there's the, the cult of Molech yeah. that gets brought up. And mm-hmm. that gets brought up in the book of Leviticus as well. Uh, where a child offering, while, while not like an embrace thing necessarily, was seen as a necessary thing or a normal yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It might be one of those things too where, you know, like you say, you see it in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, how these are things that are told, you said, you cannot do this. You should not do this. Usually we're told we can't do something because people are doing it. So, you know, in order to not look like the surrounding peoples, and I'm not going to say all the surrounding cultures did this either, because right. in fact, a lot of the pagans saw that animal sacrifice as a way of feeding the gods that they needed that. But nevertheless, you know, obviously it's something that went on or they wouldn't have had to say to them, you Israelites, you don't do that. We don't do that. Yeah. And that offers another interpretation of this, that, um, you know, you create a command about something because it's a problem. Yeah, exactly. And so was this actually a real thing in Israel? And this story acts as a means to say, no, we don't do that here. We need to be different. So that's another way that you can Mm -hmm. read what's going on. But then uh, let's go back to the testing, the proving to be true. We could also read this story, and a lot of people do, as the real question is whether or not this God is like these other deities that are kind of um, elevated in these different cultures who do child sacrifices. So is this about proving who God is? Yeah, Not about sense. proving who Abraham is. Mm-hmm. So in God proving to be true with Abraham, you know, we could mess with the Hebrew there in verse one and God's proving who God is. Okay. So that's another way that people read this is we're, we're getting a depiction of Adonai um, and then setting this God apart from other, other local deities. That sure. And, and that seems to be the common, we saw that back earlier in the, in the primal histories of Genesis where we would take certain stories turn them on their heads about how this is not a God of violence. This is not a God of chaos. So it may be that same kind yeah. of thing. So that's, again, uh, we're just throwing out all these different ways to start reading what's going on here. And that's two verses. So verse three picks up and, and now the actual details start. Okay. So um, the, they rise early in the morning 
and they saddled the donkey and took two of his young men with him. Um, but you just start noticing as you read Genesis 22, the level of detail that's brought in. And that's why I say this is kind of cinematic is they're creating a picture. You know, you, you can visualize they rose early in the morning. They saddled the donkey. Those details aren't necessary for some larger theological point. Mm-hmm. The, this, the narrative seems really important here. And this brings up um, the, the two young men. Um, and there's some conversation about what role these folks have in, in this narrative. Yeah, yeah. One of the translations that I saw called them attendants, but then at the bottom it had a footnote that said boys. So, and of course now here in the Revised Standard, it does call them young men. But um, there's some discussion about whether or not this has something to do with the fact that if Isaac was indeed going as a human sacrifice, were these boys taken along maybe because Abraham was hoping at the last minute he could sacrifice one of them instead? He isn't Mm. above replacing people sometimes. Um, Or is it a case where, just like in the story of Jephthah's daughter, where she says, Jespa offers his daughter as a, or the first person that comes out of his house as a sacrifice if he wins this battle. Well, the person happens to be his daughter, unfortunately. And then she'll say to him, well, let me, let me go for a year and mourn with my maidens, with my young friends before I'm sacrificed. So whether or not this is part of what human sacrifice looked like back then, where you would have friends or companions that were with you during that circumstance, I don't know, but it certainly seems unusual that these young men, that it mentions that they're young men, it calls them boys. So yes. there's a, you know, that's a detail that might be interesting to the story or appropriate to the story. And if they're contemporaries with Isaac, right. um, that would create this picture of sort of last rites yeah, before, exactly. before mm-hmm. death. Um, so that's one thing that we, we see there. We also get a, something that we've seen with Abraham a lot is this obedience. And not just obedience to him being willing to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loves, but obedience that God says something and he's going. And he's he doesn't stop. Almost yeah. by the time God's done saying it, Abraham's are already doing it. And that's something that we've seen before. So, mm-hmm. okay, you need to go to this mountain. All right, waking up, saddle the donkeys. Here we go. Um, so you're seeing that again. Um now, the, in verse 4, it begins, On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. And there's a couple details we should notice here. First, anytime a Christian reads third day, we go, this is about Jesus. Not necessarily. We also have to understand, if, if you'll oblige me for a second, sure. that this third day motif that's placed on Jesus um, is also based on a, a, a Hebrew motif that already existed between Passover and liberation. Oh. Um, and, and I don't think we normally emphasize that, you know, like Good Friday to Easter. Sure. But that was the same duration from the Passover to when they crossed the sea. Okay. Um, and so third day, before you make the jump to like, oh, so this must be uh, some sort of foretelling about Jesus, maybe it's a foretelling about Passover which then would connect with what happens um, in the Gospels. But sure. let's, let's start with that premise first. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's part of that. But then you get this other detail, and they saw the place far away. This means that they've been traveling for quite some time, and the place is still far away. And one of the things that I, uh, I emphasize when I read this is that means that they're 
going to a very external place. So wherever Moriah is, it doesn't seem to be in the vicinity of the, the land that Abraham's been inhabiting at all. So maybe we can even start thinking like this is some sort of exotic, distant vicinity. And that if that's the case, that would be important because of the uncertainty of this act. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't supposed to happen. And they have to travel so far away for this to even be a place they can do it. Okay, that makes sense. You sure. know, so, so that mm-hmm. that whole let, let's make sure we're considering that when we find out this detail of like that's the third day, and then they see the place, and it's still far away. They still have traveling to do. Mm-hmm. And what happens here is um, the the young men are left behind. They don't continue the journey at this point, and you get this line where Abraham says to the young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now, two important things. We, we didn't bring this up about the burnt offering. The burnt offering and worship are connected here. The second thing is that when it says we, in Hebrew, those are all plural and okay. all the verbs are plural. Mm-hmm. And... This is debated, but this seems to be where Abraham knows what the outcome is going to be. It could also be Abraham just trying to not reveal to Isaac that he's going to die. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're, you're going to come back with me. Sure. sure yeah. Um, or it could just be happenstance of, you know, there's a lot of people there, so they're still using plural verbs. Right. I tend towards the dramatic here. <laughs> well, it is a dramatic story. Be- because so it's could a be dramatic the story. As well, yeah. We have gotten already, and we're going to continue to get so much emphasis on detail, very specific detail, that I think that the author is um, is implying something overt here. Mm-hmm. That we're going to go, there's supposed to be a burnt offering, but we're also going to return. Yeah. You know, is this a little like wink nod behind the curtain? Um, that Just know that there's a lot of different views on that. But a note on worship is worth bringing up. This is the first time the word worship occurs in in the biblical text. Um, They're going to go and light something on fire, and they're going to call that worship. Okay. And this is very interesting for modern modern people in general. Sure. But especially modern Christianity, where worship is a style, a category of music on like iTunes and Spotify. (laughs) You can look up it as a genre. Um, and we've so associated worship with some sort of musical experience or mm-hmm. expression, in especially evangelical circles, mainline circles understand that there's a certain liturgy and ritual and all yeah, of that's it's like worship. Prayer, it's ritual, it's all those things. Yeah. Um, and, and just to, to think that the first time the Bible talks about worship, it's done with this, this idea of a burnt offering. They're going to light something on fire and that's worship. And, um, the literal word worship here just means to bow down, okay, to be prostrate. And that helps us start thinking of worship differently, that it's a posture. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's an act as well. But if that's the case, then a lot of things can be embodied in that concept of worship, and it's not just one specific thing. So I just, it's the first time that shows up. It's so common in modern Christianity that it's worth going like, so how does the Bible talk about this? Yeah. And this would be the first uh, the first mention okay. of it. 
So they continue to travel. Um, and then we get this, this exchange. So I'm just going to read this in verse 7. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and Abraham said, Here I am, my son. Now, if you're paying attention, that's exactly what happens in verse 2. Yeah. God says, Abraham, and Abraham says, Here I am. So now Isaac kind of takes on the role of the divine speaker, mm-hmm. where he's initiating this. And then Abraham responds the same way. And so again, if we're using that first, uh, that first verse of the testing concept and proving to be true. So when God wants to prove to be true, Abraham's identity, Abraham gets, yep, here I am. Mm-hmm. Now Isaac seems to be doing the same thing. So we've proved that Abraham is Abraham. He is the father of multitudes. Mm-hmm. And now we've proven that Abraham is Isaac's father, which is important because of what happened in Gerar. Yes, exactly. Where we had to confirm that this child that Sarah's bearing is actually Abraham's. Yeah, because, not Yeah. So um, that could also be part of the, um, the proving, um, but then also position Isaac, who doesn't get a lot of attention in, in Genesis, positioning Isaac as a, a divine voice here, replicating what God has done. Is interesting mm-hmm. to that is, think about. Yeah. And, and the fact that they keep calling Isaac his only son here when he's not his only son, it's kind of mm-hmm. like it's taken Ishmael out of the story a little bit. And to me, it's kind of like we saw with Lot, where Lot has to leave before God gives uh, Abraham some of the covenantal language. And it's almost like Ishmael has to be kind of set aside. Ishmael has a covenant through his mother, Hagar, but he's still not the child of the covenant. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, so Ishmael's out of the picture temporarily here in order to make sure that the stress is upon Isaac being the son. Yeah. And, and anytime we're reading a story like this, we have to remember the points, the covenant. Yeah. So we want to turn this into other um, theological discourses. You can do that, but just make sure you keep in mind, this is about the covenant, and that's why yeah, some of this is so stressed. Ha- things are happening in order to promote that or to show that that's about to occur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we get more details. They're traveling. Um, one thing that's interesting is Isaac is carrying the wood. Abraham is carrying the fire and the knife. It literally says the fire in his hand. Um, and sometimes the the phrasing is really strange there. It doesn't, it doesn't work well in just basic transliteration of Hebrew. Um, but sometimes this is referred to as some sort of supernatural fire. Hmm. And there is the problem we talked about of in, you, you can't just flip a switch or press a button um, or even use easy materials that we have to start fire. No. And ha- having a fire was not a uh, convenient thing. Yeah, you had to carry it with you and make sure it stayed alive, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So um, the two of them uh, are walking together. And again, I'm just going to read because this is, uh, it, it's, this is meant to be read. This is a good story. So the two of them walked on together. together. And then uh, Isaac says, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. So the two of them walked on together. And that kind of creates the sandwich and I, I, in my mind, at least, the way that sounds to me is the two of them were walking. Isaac said, hey, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, just keep on walking. And it, <laughs> it kind of has that ironic feel to it. Um, and then they finally arrive at the place that God had shown him. And then, again, the details. 
we're, we're given so much depth here. It's almost like the camera zooms in and time slows down and we're seeing everything and it's building up to a moment. Mm-hmm. So Abraham builds an altar, lays the wood, binds the son, lays him on the altar on top of the wood, reaches out, his hand takes a knife to kill his son, but a messenger shows up and then says his name twice. And then Abraham responds, here I am. Yeah. So, uh, I, if you just read, um, um, verses nine through 11, that, that all happens within those, those three verses. Um, it's, it's just a really cool picture. But the here I am emphasis seems to be the point. It's that, that seems to be what is being proven here is who is Abraham and who will Abraham's descendants be. Um, and this is where we can start getting into like, so what is the point of this? What's happening? Okay. The response is um, that, the, so this angel shows up, intervenes just like, like we've seen. Right, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and the response is, well, we know that you fear God. Um, because you have not withheld your son. Yeah. And this is where it seems pretty explicit that the point is Abraham's obedience. And, uh, I, I, but I think we need to question what kind of obedience is happening here. So the first thing to ask is why is Abraham afraid of God? And this fear motif shows up all the time. Do not be afraid. Do not sure, be afraid. Yeah, People right. are afraid. Again, it's that prophetic call. The angel comes and says, do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. And why is he so afraid of God that he won't, that he would sacrifice his son? Mm-hmm. What's driving that? And, and if you're not part of a, a faithful group, you start reading this very skeptically. Like that sounds terrifying to be so afraid of a deity that you're going to kill your children. Yeah. Um, and so is this just pure obedience? I see, look, Abraham's willing to do anything and, you know, we're not going to say that you should go kill your children, but you need to be willing to, if God asks you to, <laughs> Right. you know, is it about making God such a priority that you would do anything? And that's really dangerous. It, and people have used this to justify really evil things. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful with that. What, if we're going to go the obedience route, what I sense is happening here is the same problem we've seen since Genesis 3, which is humans overextending themselves beyond what they ought to do. They're trying to control things because Abraham so far in the narrative has not been portrayed very well. Mm-hmm. In all of those instances, he's trying to take things into his own hands. And so is he going to do that again? Yeah. Is he going to try to manipulate the situation do what's best for him, um, make things happen according to how he thinks they should go. And he doesn't. Right. He, he willingly goes through the thing that doesn't make sense. And so you could point this as, uh, this is the first time Abraham gets it right. And even though it's primitive, it's barbaric, none of this is replicable. Um, Abraham, for the first time, actually, does the right thing. Yeah, he follows through. Instead, follows like I was through, saying yeah. earlier, instead of taking one of the boys instead of his son, yep. you know, he says, nope, God said my son, I'm doing, you know, Isaac is the one who has to come with me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he ends up here. And this is where, this, so then the the move goes to this reaffirmation of the yeah. covenant, you know, mm-hmm. you're blessed. Um, 
and and because you have not withheld your son, your only son, the stars and the sand pictures are used again to talk about ancestry and descendants. Um, and, and I, I kind of read it. You got to be careful here again, because, Hey, because you were willing to murder your child, now you're going to have good things happen to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if it's remember that this is your heir. This is your, your long awaited descendant. And because that has happened and you have listened to the voice of God, and that comes up again here, you have listened to the voice. Mm-hmm this multiplication will happen and you have to trust that. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's, and now that everybody's going to have lots of kids because you did this thing, it's ancestry always exponentially increases. Remember that's what's happening here. And that's where some people do use this as a, within Judaism, child sacrifice is a no, no, not only because it's crazy, but because it cuts off a line Right. and you don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, so the emphasis seems to be, to be that that continued line of ancestry, which is incredibly important to the Jewish people. Yeah, because um, some of the scholars I was reading also felt that the reason for this story being told and being written was because of the Israelite people going through the exile and going through the, all those things that they went through. This was kind of a way for them to realize that they can, they can be faithful for the long haul and that God will be faithful for the long haul. That will not be cut off, that this is going to continue. And that was you know important to them. Another thing to emphasize here is verse 18. Um, and this is going to come up again through Genesis. So by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. And uh, that, that covenantal refrain is important because of the mm-hmm. picture it creates. You, you're obeying this divine voice. Yeah. You get blessed by that. Um, and remember the whole point is that the nations, the peoples, the world is going to receive that blessing from you. And a lot of the times where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob mess up is they obtain blessing and don't actually share it. They actually use it for their own gain. Yeah. Um, and that gets reiterated here in, in, in the perspective of, in this child that is alive and will continue to exponentially expand Remember, the whole point of this is that this blessing continues to to go out. Sure, this is going to happen. So then Abraham uh, returns, and uh, the young men are there, and then they return to Beersheba, um, which which was notated in the last couple chapters. And you know, you really do have to read this section and go. So, what does this say about God? And you have to wrestle with that dynamic of, was God in on this the whole time with Abraham? You know, we will go worship and then we will return to you. Do, do they know what's going on here? And this more about Abraham, you have to, you have to do this right. Um, and so it's not Abraham unknowingly was going to kill his son. Uh, like, does Abraham know there's going to be a ram in the bushes the whole time? Is that part of the deal? Mm-hmm. If not... You have to ask them, you, you have to somehow um, make sense of this about why would God's character include such things. And that brings, you know, you back to theodicy, you know, God being all powerful. Is God also good? And if God's not good, that's a scary universe to live in. That's right. Okay. So just be careful on how you teach this, talk about this, use this story. Um, let it be nuanced because it is and just wrestle with the questions that it raises. 
And we've brought this up a couple times in Genesis already. Genesis is not a systematic theology. Exactly. It's, it's not a theological manual. Mm-hmm. It's a narrative that we have to draw theological implications from. Right. Um, so you have to keep interacting with this and conversing with this in a way that we keep drawing uh, good theological implications from sure. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of setup for the history of the Exodus and then some of the other things that happen. So all that has to be considered when you're reading this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the end of the chapter. There's this uh, brief little bit at the at the end of chapter 22 about um, some some ancestry, a genealogy of Abraham's family. We know now in Genesis that when you get genealogies, there's a scene change happening. It's yeah. it's setting up some new kind of movement, and and that's that's what's going on here. Um, we're about to fast forward, and the people mentioned here are going to be really important. So it's taking us back to uh, Genesis 11, where some of these people were named. Yeah. And it's reminding us of Abraham's larger family, because um, Isaac's going to have to marry. And in order for the covenant to uh, be different and not be, I don't know if corrupted is the right word, by the other populations, it has the 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 tribes continuation has to happen through this small group of people. Yeah, yeah, they call that endogamy, and it's like marrying within your kin in order to keep your line pure. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's it was a common thing. It that is people that. of higher uh, court families or higher royal families would do. So they're telling us, hey, remember who these people are, mm-hmm. and that's going to come up again um, here in in a couple chapters. But now they've handled the issue of descendants, right? Um, Isaac is going to be a part of this and the the line is going to exponentially increase. The multiplication is going to happen. What about the land? And that takes us in to Genesis 23, where um, we get again another narrative that's also telling us something about the covenant and and the land. So Sarah has died and now Abraham has to find a burial place for her. And um, the fact that Sarah needs to have a permanent resting place seems to be important in establishing that idea of land, like you were saying. Now, Abraham is described as an alien resident, and there does seem to be some legal constraints involved with being an alien resident, but then acquiring land in that country. You can see that Abraham has to negotiate very closely with the, at the city gate where these kind of matters are decided. This was kind of the place where all kinds of important public affairs might be decided. The influential men of the city then would kind of convene there and matters regarding the city or relevant legal disputes would be dealt with in that spot. And we see this where, for example, the angels, when they come to Sodom, there's where Lot is sitting. He's sitting at the city gate. And then also in the book of Ruth, we see where Boaz has to bring his proposal of marriage to the council there and decide that. And so Abram has to confront these men and he has to engage in some complicated wrangling in order to do this. This matter has to be decided by the city council, and then the owner of the land then has to be persuaded that he would sell the land. Now, this all happens because Sarah dies uh, in Canaan, and it tells us Hebron and names a place. Mm -hmm. And so that means, uh, conveniently for the covenant, that she's going to need to be buried there. Yeah. So that's where all this is, is happening, and that's why this is really important for the land conversation. We are told that Sarah... uh, lived to 127. Well done. She mm-hmm. went past the set limit of 120. Then we're told that uh, Abraham, uh, Abraham has to go and mourn and weep for her. And I just want to point out, this sounds very romantic. <laughs> good story, good vibes. You know, been together a long time. They've been through a lot. 
and she dies and he mourns and weeps. Don't miss the detail that he had to go to mourn and weep for her. He wasn't with her. Uh, and we have to see that like ancient mourning was a very formal thing. Oh, yeah. You could very strongly make a case that Abraham and Sarah, you know, they didn't have a great relationship. <laughs> um, he surely seemed willing to give her away plenty of times. So this just word of caution, this has less to do with like romantic love, losing your your partner and more to do with us seeing how um, mourning and uh, the the intimacy of death and mourning and how that worked in, in that culture. The ancient, ancient cultures of and how they dealt with death are really fascinating, very formal processes that you went through that took a long time. And, and we're told that happened. And then the issue of the land and the burial took place. Yeah. So Abraham is going through that process. And then he raises up from his dead uh, and then goes to the Hittites. Um, one thing to note here about the people groups is we're starting to see different people groups get brought in. Um, and if, you're, if you've been paying attention since like Genesis 4... We keep getting these lists of different peoples, these interactions of different tribes and nations, um, and it keeps including more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And part of the agenda of Genesis is dealing with all of these groups that lived around what becomes Israel. So people who lived in the Levant, in that strip of land, and then the people who lived around it. And so here the Hittites are brought up and, you know, you see... Abraham, the, the patriarch, dealing with this group of people because Israel will have dealings with these peoples as time goes on. Right. So it sets what that relationship should be like. And there's some cooperation here. There's some animosity between the Hittites. Same thing's going to happen in a couple chapters with the Philistines. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that part is important. I doubt realistically that there was much interaction with the Hittites by by this group of people at this point, and unless they were coming down to raid or um, uh, manipulate or get something from them. Yeah. Um, there, there probably wasn't a whole lot of legal dealing. The Hittites were a formidable uh, power during this time. But they also weren't incredibly involved in the Levant. Yeah, they weren't really in this area that much. Um, one of the translations, they will call these people the sons of Heth. So it might not even be the same Hittites. Uh -huh. And it could be that they're mentioning these people as Hittites in order to add them as one of those tribal groups that they're going right. to have to eventually move them out of the promised land, to put it delicately. So they're like the, one of the first tribes then to say, okay, now we're supplanting these people a little bit. And that then kind of continues on. Now, that being said then... Uh, the interaction with the Hittites is interesting. So, you know, Abraham wants this property for yeah. burial grounds. And the Hittites uh, respond to Abraham and they say, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Mm -hmm. Bury your dead in the choices of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you any burial ground for burying your dead. Um, in, my, in my reading, I think they're being sarcastic. Because with Abimelech of Gerar, Abraham is very powerful. Mm -hmm. With the Hittites, I doubt that's the case. Sure, he's an alien resident. Why would they consider yeah. him a powerful person? So I, I, I'm kind of sensing mm -hmm. this like, oh, yes, mighty prince. What do you want? Because what's going to happen is they're going to go, well, uh, we're going to make this difficult for you to access this. Right. Now, on Abraham's side, he comes in and says, I don't want this given to me. 
I want to purchase this. And that's important because Abraham has to justify his claim to the land. And by having an outright sale, he can now say, I bought this. I own it. Absolutely. And and therefore you have a piece of land in um, what will be Israel that they have proper ownership of. Yeah. And it's been done before witnesses. This is very much a legal contract because you see all the elements of, um, the properties described is kind of prescribed like here's the land is the if you boundary, had markers. boundary markers, yeah. including the trees. That's important. How much that's sold for what the land is going to be used for. So you've got the price. This is going to be used for a burial site. And that's all said in front of the city council. So it's all said before witnesses. So it is. It's like just exactly like a legal contract or a real estate contract. Well, and then we want to look at uh, Efron or Efron, Zach yeah. Efron. Yeah. If we, that was a joke. <laughs> um, so Efron wants to give the land and we look or at that so oh, what a nice guy he wants to mm-hmm. no 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 that's not what's happening here because yeah. if um uh, if a friend gives the land he can claim it back mm-hmm. so abraham doesn't want the land given because it can still be claimed by the owner so he just insists on buying it um and and ephron now i want to say ephron which maybe that's how it's pronounced ephron is how i would say it um he, he still wants to gain something out of this while it not being a direct uh, price. Right. And that's this tactic you're talking about where, um, you know, oh, I'll give you this, but, you know, you could yeah. slide this down as well. Yeah, this was a common way. And even into modern times of negotiating, perhaps, um, Agatha Christie, who those of you who are a certain age will know who she is. She was a famous mystery writer, and she was married to a man who was an archaeologist. And when they would go into sites to dig, they would go to the village to talk to the sheik there and sometimes kind of offer a little gift because their dig might disrupt the village life. And the sheik would often speak to them like, oh, you know, what is this speaking of payment between brothers? We're thrilled to have you. What an honor this is. A gold watch would be a really nice thing to have. Or, oh, we're thrilled that you're going to build a house. You know, why don't you build it in this best location in the place? Because that'll be a really nice place for a family to live once you're gone. So it's kind of this indirect way of saying, sure, I'm going to give this to you. This is how much it's worth. And then they, of course, know, well, of course, we're going to give you gold watches and money and cars or whatever it takes in order for us to be allowed to dig here and everybody's Mm -hmm. happy. And everybody kind of leaves knowing that negotiation was done the correct way. Legally, though, the power between this is important. You know, if if they can say we gave this to him, right? Um, they they maintain the power of the property. Yeah, and that does make Abraham sense. Abraham wants to avoid that. Mm-hmm. We're also told that this is at the end of um, Ephron's. I keep doing it now. Ephron's field, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's important too because you know, so a- Abraham wants a, a true deed of sale, if yep. that's what we want to call it. And he wants it in this location because it won't entreat on the other person's property. So it'll be accessible without depending on a right-of-way mm-hmm. where he doesn't have to depend on the owner of the other parcel there. Yeah, he doesn't have to create an easement. Yes, no no easement there. Um, so I think this is positioning the conversation of Abraham wants absolute right to the land. Yes. And it will forever be in his name. And now we have the fulfillment of the covenants part of you will receive land. This right. would mean that they... They have land. Right. And the, they do own it because if, according to tradition, Abraham is buried there, Jacob and Leah are buried there, Isaac and Rebecca are all buried there. Yeah. And so that's the tradition. Even to this day, you can go to that place and the, traditionally that's the burial site. So in the, in the imagination of the Jewish people, 
the entrance to the promised land actually begins here mm-hmm. in, in chapter 23, where now they own some of that. And as they're in Exodus, as they're moving back, they, they have this narrative and this tradition that tells them we're going into a place we already own and have been removed from. Yeah. So it's not a new journey. So that, that's a reason this story um, is so important. So you have the Genesis 22 about descendants. Mm-hmm. Now, this is about land. These are the two promises that are supposed to work within the covenant. And now Abraham no longer just inhabits the land. He owns a piece of it. And all that happens via a burying place. Mm-hmm. So the death of Sarah is really just to help Abraham get some land. <laughs> Isn't that the way? But it's almost like, too, because he actually buries her there. Now he's sealed the deal. He has used the land for what it's supposed to be for. So he's almost saying he's having faith in this promised land because he's going to bury his wife there. This is ours now. Yep. So now the uh, Abraham story is going to decline in transition. Um, we've we've hit most of the components of Abraham's life, mm-hmm. and Isaac will rise a little bit. Abraham's going to wrap some things up before he dies, and will be buried on the same piece of property. And then the story is going to almost skip over Isaac and go straight to Jacob, because <laughs> yeah. that's that's really that's really how this how this is going. So uh, if you followed along, you're through a solid portion of Genesis. And that, uh, that ending of Abraham's journey certainly intentionally takes place within these two conversations of the two components of the promise, promises of the covenant of land and descendants. And now that's going to somehow continue through uh, Abraham's tribe. So that's it for this episode. Next time we will get into chapter 24 and chapter 25. See you then. <laughs>